Hi, this is Jennifer Javornik, and you're listening to the Film and Games Podcast. This year, I attended the Games for Change Festival in New York City. Tune in to all the interviews in this series to hear insightful conversations with some of the best minds in educational gaming. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Film and Games Podcast. This is Jennifer, and this week I'm recording from Games for Change, one of my favorite Uh, conferences or festivals that I go to during the year, all because I get to see people I know and love. And today our guest is going to be one of those people, and I'd love him to introduce himself. Thank you, Jennifer, for having me. My name is Jan Plass. I'm a professor of digital media and learning sciences at New York University, and I direct a lab called Create, in which we invent, design, and study the future of learning. Ah, that's so exciting. First off, let's hear all about it. Tell me about what you're teaching and what you're doing in the lab and, and what's the most exciting thing work that you're doing right now. Yeah, I'm happy to. So NYU um, and my program at NYU, we have a Master's of uh, Arts in learning, experience, learning Technology Experience Design and a Master of Science in Games for Learning, which I believe is the only Master of Science in the country that's actually called Games for Learning. Certainly the first one. And so I teach one course on designing simulations and games for learning and one on user research methods, which focuses on simulation and games, but not just that. Um, So we also have a PhD, of course, in educational communication and technology where the students learn how to do research that actually results in publishable results, um, papers, conference presenting, presentations, etc., Uh, But the mission of the lab really is to think about learning with digital tools and how they need to be designed based on theory and validated empirically with research uh, to be effective for learning. So we ask a lot of questions around how do games need to be designed, how do virtual reality, augmented reality needs to be designed to be effective for learning. What are the big conclusions? The conclusions are that it depends. <laughs> it depends on who the learners are, what the content is, what the setting is, what the goals and objectives are. Um, but there are a lot of interesting findings. My favorite one of all of them is that we found that the learner's emotional state during learning matters. And if I can design the learning experience such that it induces positive emotions in the learner, I get better outcomes without changing anything else. I just use color, shape, game character design, other elements of the game that I not add, which would be adding to your processing demands, but that I change to be inducing those positive emotions and I see improved outcomes. And so we do a lot of research on what that would look like, right? How would you design a game, virtual reality, to induce those positive emotions to enhance the outcome? I love that you've studied that because that's so logical to me. And yet kind of when I think about like game day, game-based learning design theory, I don't hear that a lot no. as, uh, you know, it's obvious, but also not stated kind of right. feels like a new perspective. So I'm excited to bring that back to the studio. You've published on it. Yes, we have. And uh, I didn't realize I was going to make a, a, a little uh, a PR stuff <laughs> for my book, but we do have the Handbook of Game-Based Learning that appeared with MIT Press, which is an edited volume with a lot of amazing contributors. And there are a number of chapters on um, motivation and affect, emotion in game-based learning and how to design for that and the research around that. And uh, yeah, this is one of the things that really came about through games, where we realized that games that have so many affordances for learning, right? Um, But the one that we often don't talk about is the affordance or the ability to 
induce, modify, you know, get people to experience certain things emotionally, not just uh, in a thinking or cognitive way. And when you think about your daily life, we, we're not just thinking beings, we're feeling beings, right? We have emotions and different materials evoke different emotions in us. In fact, so we are sometimes way too emotional about things and not rational enough, right? But in a game, we can be both. And we want to leverage that to enhance outcomes. And that's, to me, one of the, the interesting findings because um, we used to study anxiety, math anxiety, test anxiety. So we're so much focused on the negative emotions that it's really exciting now to see uh, boredom and frustration is another one in, in intelligent tutoring systems because they are boring and frustrating, <laughs> can be. Um, but, but all of those environments would benefit from that emotional design idea. And so we're pursuing that in games and virtual reality. We are not plugging your book, but tell me again what the title of the book is and where people can find it. It's the Handbook of Game-Based Learning, appeared at MIT Press in 2020. Oh, perfect. Okay, great. Well, we had to add that to the filament library. Uh, okay, well, tell me uh, things that you're rocking in the lab. Like, what kind of, what are some of the projects uh, that you guys are doing that you're excited about? I'm easily excitable. So, yes, I'm excited about too. all of them. <laughs> My. You can't pick your favorite child, but give me. The favorite project, yeah. Well, one project that is very different from many of the other projects that we have done is work that we do in conjunction with Lego. We've heard of them. We've heard of them, right? Um, and they're not just doing bricks. They're also having a lot of games out. And what I found really impressive when I met and, and visited uh, Billund in, in uh, the headquarters is how committed they are to protecting children. Um, this is a question of children's rights. This is a question of children's protection. And um, the initiative that we're part of is called Responsible Innovation in Technology for Children. And it is not just Lego that is doing that. There are other partners. The Fair, Fair Play Alliance is looking into that. And the question is, how can we design digital play experiences that are designed responsibly so that they don't harm children, but really foster their growth and development, right? Which we all want. And in part, it is a response to all the negative discourse about screen time. And I wrote a blog post at the height of the pandemic that it's really not screen time, but what you do on your screens. Because I watched my kids at the time, they were, I think, 16 and 19, and they were on computers the whole time. And I was really upset about that at first. And then I realized my older one, was composing music in an FL studio, and he's now a music technology major at NYU. My younger one was looking up how to play the, his favorite piano pieces in different styles, and he was you know, imitating that on the piano. So it's not about screen time, but what you do, and how do we guide our children, our, our learners, our users, uh, to the kind of play experiences that are positive. So with the um, Ritech, Responsible Innovation and Technology for Children project, we are looking into 8- to 12-year-olds' digital play and to what extent that has the capability of increasing their well-being. So we're looking at child well-being and digital play. And for us, what's very new is uh, well-being was never one of the outcomes we looked at. We always looked at learning. And um, we rarely look at commercial games. We look at our own games, learning games, right? But in this case, we have games like Angry Birds or Plants vs. Zombies or Rocket League Sideswipe or Lego Tower or Lego Builder's Journey as part of the suite of games that kids played for about eight to ten weeks. 
And we measured well-being with a measure called KidScreen 27. It's an established measure, was developed in Europe and, and validated um, pre and post. And we are looking for changes in their well-being reports. And that is research that was conducted in the United States, um, in uh, South Africa, and in Chile. So we have a broad cultural and, and geographic distribution. And we're just analyzing the results, but we're seeing very positive outcomes as far as well-being is concerned. And uh, so that is a, a really interesting finding. And uh, now we're thinking about what that means for the game industry, right? What recommendations could we make? What, how can we guide those game designers who want to be responsible in their game design for children to implement those principles? That makes sense to me. So are there any, you said that overall it's showing that a positive effect on their well-being. Did it depend on something, the game that they played or how long they played or who they played with? Right. So we um, had them play over a course of about eight to 10 weeks, uh, once or twice a week for about 45 minutes. So this was not long play. Yep. Um, the biggest effects we find are for those who report lower well-being at the outset, right? So if you go into South Africa, or I mean, you don't, you don't have to go that far. You can go into parts of my living North. room. Oh wait, what? Right. <laughs> so you find places very easily where children report lower well-being than than in other places. And for those who had a lower score on the pretest, we see the biggest gains. Ah, right. So, and that's exactly the audience that we're we're thinking about because if you already are doing very well and your well-being score is very high, there isn't much to improve. Mm -hmm. That's like with anything else. We we've done research on executive functions. If you already have high executive functions, no matter how much you play our games, you're not going to improve much because you're already pretty high, right? That's the same thing uh, in general with learning as well. And so um, we see it in those kids. Um, we also, a very interesting finding is that there is a relation um, among how social the students, the kids were during the game, playing the games, and what their score in well-being, the increase in well-being was. Meaning more social, more, more well-being? More social, higher, higher increases in well-being. And um, those games, um, if, you, if you've listened to them earlier, they're not social games. They're individually played games, but the kids were together in a classroom. So mm. we tracked what their social interactions were, and we did what we call the social network analysis, where you compute how social, how interactive kids were with one another. And we added that as one of the parameters in our model when we analyzed the data. And we found so when you say that, that, all the kids are in the classroom playing their own game, mm -hmm. but you're noticing if they, they one kid go over looks to another table and say, hey, let's, let's both play Angry Birds or let's all of us play Angry Birds. And there are some kids that are really the connectors, right? They socialize with everyone. And then there are other kids who are less social, but still involved, right? And so each of those kids gets a score based on how often they interact with other kids. And we note that in, in an observation. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and so um, that was one of the very interesting findings of that. So when is it all coming out? When should we expect it? And can you send it to me? Yes, I can send it to you. The first report is already out, which was together with um, UNICEF, uh, a report on a framework of child well-being. Because there are so many approaches to child well-being that um, the first phase of the project was to define what it even means. And um, our report, which is phase two of the empirical research, which also involved researchers in uh, England and in Australia, doing a very qualitative increase, home visits, where they watched how games changed, introduction, introduction of games changed the dynamics in the home. That was in, in Sheffield in England. 
And then um, in Australia at QUT, the researchers looked at um, biometrics during gameplay and how the emotional response to certain aspects of the game might have a relation to well-being. So that's all coming out. Well, those those reports have to be vetted by so many partners. Um, we are going to finalize it in November, but it might be all the way until spring of 24 before they're coming out. But I'm happy to send you an advanced copy. Perfect. Well, thank you. Perfect. Okay, so you talked about working, that was the whole research you're doing with LEGO. Is there any other projects you'd like to mention that your lab is working on? Yeah, we've been fortunate enough to have support from Verizon Corporate Social Responsibility uh, for the past several years to build uh, collaborative, immersive virtual reality science simulations. Mm. And that project is called Looking Inside. And Looking Inside Cells deals with middle school cell biology. And um, we have done research on simulations for a long time. And what always bothered me is um, when you give students, um, learners, a simulation, it's already designed, it's already there, and then they get to explore it, which is not bad. But what if they build their own models rather than we're building it for them? So for these simulations um, in virtual reality, learners either by themselves or in small groups um, have all the organelles that go into plant cells, animal cells, prokaryotic cells, and they have to pick which ones, when they want to build a plant cell, what goes into a plant cell, right? There's the cell wall, the the nucleus and so on, um, and the chloroplasts. And so they have those assets, and then they construct a cell, either by themselves or with their peers, um, and, and thereby learn about um, cell biology, not just by looking at a completed model and learning, memorizing the labels of, of the different organelles, but by doing it themselves. And then they move on to doing uh, mitosis uh, cell division, and they're actually actively involved in the cell division and are, you know, um, making Great that happen. embodied practice, right? yeah. Exactly. So it's the interactive and collaborative nature of those simulations that we're very excited about. And um, cells are spatial. They are not just flat, right? They have a volume. And so to me, that is uh, one of the affordances of VR is working with spatial relations. And so we have that in this uh, particular simulation. And so we've built those for for a while. We've done some research on their effectiveness. Um, There's a very um, study dating back to 2018 or 2019 uh, by colleagues of ours that actually took virtual reality material extracted the core of it and put it into a slideshow and then compared a slideshow to the virtual reality environment. And they found that people learn better from the slideshow and there's lower cognitive load. And and I could not let that stand. So we ran a similar study and we've analyzed the data right now and we're uh, submitting that to our big education conference where we find the opposite. We actually find that learning from virtual reality is better. And my interpretation of that is that you need to make sure you take advantage of the affordances of a medium, which means what can that medium do especially well, right? We know what games can do especially well. They motivate, they give us problem solving, they let us collaborate and socialize with others, they induce positive emotions, they give give us feedback that can be adaptive and so on. But what about virtual reality? And one of the big things in virtual reality is if it's not spatial, if it's not 3D, then why use virtual reality? I mean, you, no one can see it, but I'm rolling my eyes yes, because the yes. number of customers that come to me and being like, we have all of these great 
like e-learning. Yeah. Let's put it in VR. Yes, and I was right. like, well, it's actually probably better as if, if you want to do something else, how about printing it? Because <laughs> it's right. flat text. Really exciting technology, right? It's a persistent technology. You print it on paper. You can even read it in the dark light <laughs> conditions. I, it lasts it. for at least 30 years, we, 40 we years. We love it. We yeah. love it. But for certain types of, of learning goals and, and subjects, virtual reality is exciting, right? We have one project in collaboration with our dental school where it's all about a nerve block that dentists have to do before they uh, extract your tooth. So there's an injection um, of the anesthetics that needs to go in at a certain angle and with a certain pressure. Now, that's a perfect application for virtual reality, right? But if it's 2D or if it involves a lot of text, then why use that, right? I mean, we're in complete agreement on that. And so... Um, these virtual reality science learning simulations, another topic that we're going to use is uh, the solar system. Exactly. And uh, right, that's also special. Um, and so we just got a new project funded where we are looking into the effect of the presence that you can experience and the corresponding emotional design, again, now in virtual reality, that can be uh, achieved through visual and auditory sound, spatial audio, and uh, haptic uh, elements in virtual mm. reality. And so we asked the question, what design factors, visual, auditory, haptic, um, can induce the kind of emotions in virtual reality environments that then enhance learning outcomes? Oh, that's, I could see the merit of that research. What do you, I know, uh, Jan, you spent a lot of time kind of in academic settings, but I, I'm interested if you have an opinion of where we are with kind of the practical rollout and use of VR in schools? <laughs> That's a great question. I think um, Verizon has focused on schools and they have the Verizon Innovative Learning Labs and they have seeded that in many schools throughout the country. But that project has made it very clear that it takes an active involvement of sponsors to get schools ready to adopt these technologies. Teachers are keen. They're eager. I mean, the teachers we've worked with are the hardest working and most underpaid professionals. And most caring seen. humans. Most caring. Agreed. And uh, they want to use that technology, but the barriers to entry are still too high. Uh, the prices are coming down, but even with lower prices, there is still so many uh, logistical um, challenges um, that need to be solved. Um, so we, we see it work when corporations take up their social responsibility and, and get involved. Um, we try to provide the research to make sure the materials that are available are designed well. Um, but I still see a huge uh, differential among the schools who have the resources and, and who do not have the resources. Um, and it's, like I said, it's not so much the cost. I mean, those headset prices are coming down and they will continue to come down. But it's teacher professional development. It's then to, to get the right resources and the, the right um, um, learning materials into the teacher's hands. And, and to have the kind of physical spaces where you can do that. I mean, the one kind of real conflict between virtual reality and school is that it occludes your vision, right? So now you have potentially 30 students with a headset on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't even have to continue that thought, right? That can end very badly. Um, so I almost wonder whether in the end, augmented reality is going to be the way to go in schools because you can still see who you're potentially bumping into. 
that, that was my first thought when I saw the design and the specs on the Apple Vision Pro. Yeah. I think not only is it nice because, uh, you know, you can see the real world as well as the augmented layer, but I'm also really excited about no hand devices. Right. I know in some of the playtesting that I've witnessed, um, especially if it's someone who doesn't play a lot of regular video games or doesn't have the hand-eye coordination to press a lot of buttons at the same time and certain combination of buttons, like that can be a barrier to learning. But of course, as a game developer, we want deep experiences that uses all the buttons. Right, right, right. So I'm excited the Vision Pro is just natural hands. I'm hoping that's going to do a lot for inclusion. I think so. Um, I think we generally speaking see a movement as far as technology development is concerned away from really what what one might describe as a crutch that we had to use for a certain period of time before we could do better. Um, For me, for instance, screens um, in classrooms are a a crutch, a provisional thing that that we hope to get away from by moving to mixed reality environments where I have smart objects that I can manipulate, right? I don't need a screen anymore. The object itself can tell me. And um, and we will see the same thing with um, extended reality, where um, the fact that we're wearing a headset that doesn't have video pass through, those days are going to be over soon. I mean, many yep. many headsets now have video pass through, and and many of them full color video pass through that are coming up. Um, and um, one of the exciting future projects that we proposed but haven't gotten funded yet is one of those um, NSF expeditions grants where it's experiential computing. So it's all about if we had the technology that we have in five or 10 years, what would we do with it, right? If we, if it weren't an issue anymore that I'm reaching for my, my well, maybe not a coffee cup, but for a cell or for an organelle or for an atom, I can actually touch it when, it, when I reach for it, right? And so we're working with robotics people, machine learning people, uh, um, computer graphics people at NYU, and we proposed this this very exciting project. And that would change everything as far as learning and collaboration and creating is concerned, because we now would have those spaces that would enable that kind of creativity, whether you're present in the same space or not. Um, so I think we, we will see all of that in the, in the very short, um, uh, very near future. And um, the big question is the AI, AI question, right? That everybody is wrestling with, and that uh, it was my next question. I was like, "Oh, Yana's going to have some good ideas about this." Yeah, I'm. As a researcher, what are you excited to research in AI and education? My, for us, the biggest challenge has always been the generation of high quality content. Um, and we have these really amazing frameworks like um, a culturally responsive framework, right? So we want to be culturally responsive in our in our learning, but in the end, that means you have to decide what that means and build a few use cases and a few scenarios. What if you didn't have to, right? What if you could, your AI, generate that on the fly? I think there's a lot of potential for that to say, uh, content generation based on the learner's needs and interests and and you know directions they're going into, um, but I think we're a few steps away from that. I can't say a time because it's been so rapidly evolving that we don't know. Um, but the fact that even the creators are hard pressed to tell us what went into their models 
um, and what documents and what sources they did or didn't include and whether they're biases or not. Um, that needs to be solved, and people are working on that. Um, I want to make sure I understand what you just said. So when you say culturally responsive AI frameworks, that would be like, for example, if you were designing a math problem, different students could get the same learning, but in different contexts that mm -hmm. would be relevant to them? Yeah, New York State adopted this culturally responsive uh, um, framework for learning, which essentially says we don't um, see it as a deficit what your cultural background is. We see it as a strength, as something you bring to the table. Now, that's a, a great approach, but it would mean that I would need to be able to, to respond to that no matter what that background is that you're bringing to the table, right. right? And New York is very diverse, and so there's all these different backgrounds. And if one child wants to learn about math in a particular context, uh, I might not have designed the materials for that particular interest, but an AI could produce it on the fly. If I could rely that what comes out of that generation is actually something that is appropriate and not biased and uh, and, and vetted. Not stereotypical. Right? You can see yeah. how very quickly it could go wrong. It could very quickly go into stereotyping, exactly. And so that will require a lot of thought on how to apply those models. Uh, the same thing with large, large language models, right? We know that that can go quite wrong. And um, while that is amusing, when you have that conversation within a chat GPT that goes off on a hallucination, uh, we wouldn't <laughs> want that to happen to our children in the classroom. Right. Um, so I think there are, those are solvable problems, um, but it requires the kind of uh, responsible and, and transparent and um, uh, generally speaking, uh, interpretable AI that we currently don't have. And that AI researchers who are on that side of ethics have been called for for some time. Um, but, you know, we're at the beginning of that, and um, and we see now the exciting future that that co can go into. And I think, like with every other technology, what I always find is we need to envision where we could be with it, and we need to do the research on if we were at that point, what would we tell game designers as guidance or AR, VR designers who want to in incorporate AI? What would we tell them as guidance on how to design accordingly, right? And so that is upon our, us researchers and, and the responsibility to, to uh, produce those research, research results now so that when the time is right and when those, those systems are ready, that uh, we are ready with the research as well. That makes sense to me. I was just thinking, I'm glad people like you and your lab exist, that you're taking on these big questions. Um, I wanted to wrap up with talking a little bit about the Games for Positive Impact community, because while Games for Change doesn't really have a membership, we kind of, I think of ourselves as this community. Where do you think we've arrived in 2023? And wh what do you think the work that's left to do? Well, um, I was deeply impressed by um, 20 years of this initiative and what Games for Change has been able to achieve. I remember the early days. We were part of it from, I think, the fifth year on when we had the Games for Learning Day at Games for Change that was still held at NYU um, when that was still large enough. And um, so I think we, we are a small but really important group of people who point out that there can be positive change that uh, can be achieved with games and that no matter how serious the problem, it can be playful and it can be something that can be done in a game. 
And I, I, st I see how that slowly seeps into other environments. And we call that playful learning rather than game-based learning, where um, the, the, you would never call it a game, but you would find it much more enjoyable than traditional learning experiences were before. Um, but in an age of um, misinformation, disinformation, real challenges as a society, I mean, our challenges are only growing. So the importance of this community is, is going to grow with it. And um, what was really encouraging to see that there was uh, a day at the United Nations to really look at the United Nations goals that was on Monday and how games and games for change can make a contribution to them. And I strongly believe that they can and I strongly believe they should. Um, because why make it another somber, sad uh, kind of initiative or campaign when we can make it a playful one that people enjoy doing? I agree. You know what? One of the parts I loved about that first day the most is when the UN kind of stood up and and were they were able to articulate that what they they are so excited about working with our community is more they're like you have the people, you have the hearts and minds of the people we want to reach. I thought that was really powerful because for a while I was thinking, well, this must be just a nice thing they're doing for Susanna because they're all in New right, York. Right, right. And then it was very clear after there, they're like, no, no, we need you because we need, we have massive goals. We're halfway through our 20 year initiative or 10 years in, we're not halfway through. So we need to accelerate what we're doing and we think we could do it through games. I also like that they were thoughtful about Here's some information. I hope they give us the slides. Here's some information that may point you to where there's global interest. Like, for example, they're like, every time we tweet about reproductive rights, we get 10 times the amount of likes and reshares than any other subject. Right. Or they kind of went through thoughtfully. I thought that was really smart of them. It, it was. And, um, and so you see that from an NGO level. And, and what I find really interesting about uh, a conference like Games for Change is that uh, they are partners, they're studios. I mean, Filament Games has always been in that space, right? So for you, that's not new. But for Epic Games to join Lego to say, we want to be part of responsible innovation and technology for children and for other studios to do the same, that is a really positive sign. And so, so positive. And I thought, you know, that also clicked with me this week, being like, we can keep going in our little scale that we know and keep making these games that we're fighting for people's attention or we can infiltrate Fortnite, That's or right. we can infiltrate where the players already are yeah. and bring some of these messages. And I don't think it's an either or, it's both. I agree. I mean, certainly if you're listening to this and you're from Epic or Riot and you want a partner in serious games to work with you, uh, we're available. But other than that, I think it all has to happen. I agree. Um, you know, that makes sense. Um, it's interesting too. I, one thing that's striking me this year, I don't know your experience is how games for change has been, um, so good at reaching a global community. I remember probably the first time I came nine years ago. Um, I mean, I was the outer towner from Wisconsin and now I've spoken to people from Russia and Arab countries and South Africa and, uh, uh, which is great. I think the other thing I've heard at this conference from people not in the games industry of how uh, they're genuinely like shocked and curious and observant that the people in the community like you, like us, like other developers, like other researchers, 
not only is there there no competition or secrecy, it's like, how can I help you? Right. Um, I think it's always been because like we recognize, even though we might think we're a big deal in what we do, the industry is so tiny still. Right. And if we could just get more people playing games, serious games and games and thinking critically about this, it serves all of us. Yeah, I think that's what really has been drawing me to this this community is um, how collegial and, and, and collaborative we are. And I attribute that to the fact that we're all gamers and we know of the value of joining forces, right? We've, we've been there in the game, so why wouldn't we do it in the real world? So to me, that is a really nice transfer from a within-game experience to an out-of-game experience. And that could be really a model for other disciplines that are so competitive and, and you know, trying to, to steal each other's results rather than collaborating. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, to me, there, there are so many positive aspects of the Games for Change community that could really apply to the rest of the world. Uh, or the rest of society, um, we certainly aren't all on the same page philosophically, probably politically, or, or in many ways. Um, but we get we get along because we have a common goal, and we as a society should realize we do have a common goal as society. Right? We want to move forward, and we want to live fulfilled lives, and have our children live fulfilled lives. So why can't we adopt the approaches that the Games for Change community is taking and make that playful and enjoyable and not something where we have to get mad at each other for, for everything that we might differ in. Ah, that was perfectly stated. Thank you. I think I'm going to end there. Jana, it was so great to have you on Thank board. You Thank so you much so much. What a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Filament Games podcast. If you like to hear more about games, game-based learning, and what's happening at our studio, subscribe today on iTunes or Stitcher. And be sure to visit us at our website, filamentgames.com.